Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark 15. We're going to be in Mark 15 this morning. Mark chapter 15. Well, the killing of a king is no small matter. The killing of a king is no small matter. This was especially true in 17th century Britain. Then King Charles I, in the 1640s, after the English Civil War, King Charles had been overpowered by an angry and a frustrated parliament. He'd been taken into custody by these parliamentarians, and and then they decided to do the unthinkable. This group of men, I think 135 of them, they decided to disregard the divine right of kings and to hold King Charles I accountable for the appalling suffering and slaughter endured by his subjects. And so a tribunal of 135 was hastily gathered there in London. And although Charles, throughout the whole process, refused to acknowledge the the right, the power of his subjects to try him, they unanimously passed a death sentence. And on January 30th of 1649, which on Tuesday will be 369 years ago, but on January 30th, 1649, in an event unique in English history, the king of England was beheaded, executed by his own people. Now, now hear me, there, there are numerous differences between Charles I and Jesus. Lots of differences, lots of differences. But I, I use this illustration at the outset because there are a few similarities. Both of these men in their respective trials, appeared to be helpless, passive at at the will of the people, at the mercy of the governing powers and, and the procedures that were put into place. And both of these men would eventually be tried and killed, executed as kings. And as one account, and as one reads the accounts of both these men's trials and executions, because they were kings, there ought to be a sense of shock, a, a shuddering at the fact that, that the king was killed, executed. And so in our passage this morning, we're going to see the beginning of this crucifixion process of King Jesus. In fact, through our passage, you'll see King of the Jews is repeated over and over and over. And I think what Mark wants us to see is that the king is actually being crucified, So if you're in your Bibles, look at Mark chapter 15. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and I'm going to read through chapter 20 so you can follow along. Mark 15, beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read through verse 20. Verse 1, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus, and they led him away, and they delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And and Pilate again asked them, have you no answers to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and they began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. 
But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what, what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Verse 16, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, in the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Let's pray. Father, this morning I pray that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of your word. And Father, I pray that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Awaken our hearts this morning, I pray, to love Christ, to sing of his mercy, and to proclaim his excellencies, the one who's called us out of darkness into marvelous light. And it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, we have three sections, three scenes that, that play out in these 20 verses. And so first scene, scene one, the king is questioned, verses one through five, and then Scene two, the king is delivered or handed over, verses 6 through 15. And then finally, this, this final scene, the final section, verses 16 through 20, the king is mocked by the soldiers. So let's, let's just work through those sections together. So first, beginning in verses 1 through 5, the king is questioned. Now, over these past, past weeks, as we've been going through Mark's gospel, we, we've seen Jesus betrayed by Judas he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was, he was led before the high priest Caiaphas at, at Caiaphas's house. And, and then he was put on trial there before the high priest and all the Sanhedrin. And then last week we saw that, that upon Jesus' response to, to the high priest, Caiaphas rips his clothes and says, Blasphemy! What more evidence do you need? And, and there he was condemned by all of them to be put to death. Now, now, all of that, all those events have, have taken place over the course of, of one night. It's been one night, and our passage this morning, verse 1, picks up the morning of that same night. There's, there's this urgency that the Sanhedrin, that these religious leaders felt that they had to get before Pilate first thing in the morning. Because if the day got going and the cases got heard, they, they wouldn't have a hearing. And so there's this urgency. They're meeting over the night, not sleeping, because they've got to get... This done. So, so notice there in verse 1. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. So we, we, we've said this before, but just to make clear, Pilate, well, well, so the high priest, the Sanhedrin, all of these Jewish religious leaders, they could condemn Jesus as deserving death, but they could not carry out the actual execution. They couldn't do that. And so they've issued their verdict... But now it's up to Pilate. They, they take Jesus, their condemned prisoner, to Pilate. 
They need Pilate to agree with their judgment, then to follow through, and, and Pilate would be the one who would carry out the judgment. So they take Jesus to Pilate. Now, and as, now as they go to Pilate, think about what's going on. Think about before the high priest, Jesus was convicted of blasphemy, right? He, he claimed himself to be the Messiah, and they were, they were astonished and offended that he would claim to be the Messiah, and so they, they charge him with blasphemy. They're distraught by his claims. But these are religious claims, aren't they? They're religious claims. The Sanhedrin take issue with Jesus' religious claims. And so why in the world, as they're going to Pilate, why in the world would Pilate care about disputes concerning these Jewish religious claims? Why would Pilate care that he claims to be the Messiah of the Jews? Right? Pilate wouldn't care. He wouldn't care. Which is why in verse 2... The question that Pilate asked Jesus has nothing to do with blasphemy or Jewish religion. Notice verse 2, what does Pilate ask Jesus? He says, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Which, while there's, there's no specific charge stated, Pilate's question implies that, that these religious leaders have accused Jesus of, of claiming royal authority, of claiming to be king, to rival the emperor. The religious charges that, that were established before the Sanhedrin would have been of little concern to Pilate. So these religious leaders modify the charges and, and they bring political charges before Pilate. This man claims to be king of the Jews. How do you like that, Pilate? Can you believe that? You see, they change these charges. And so Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews as, as the claim has been made against you? Verse 2 still, Jesus answered, you have said so. Your translation may be a little different. There, there's a lot of discussion surrounding this reply. All four Gospels record this exact same reply. You have said so, translated here. And so the discussion is, well, well, what does he mean? Is it a positive? Is it a negative? What is Jesus saying? I don't know. But the point that I simply want to make is that Jesus answers affirmatively in one sense, but in his answer there, there seems to be an apparent hesitation or reservation. In other words... Jesus seems to be hinting at the fact that, that it is true that he is the king of the Jews. Yes, affirmative, but what he means by king of the Jews is probably not what Pilate means by king of the Jews. Do you see that there's, there's cause for hesitation? So it's as if Jesus, it's as if Jesus is saying, what you're, what you're saying is right, your words are right, but, but I think you understand differently what that means. It's like Inigo Montoya right? You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means, right? It says, says Jesus is saying, yeah, yeah, you're calling me king of Jews. That's right, but, but it's not how you think. If Jesus would have just closed the door, yes, that's exactly right. No hesitation. I think the case would have been over right then and there, but it's not. Notice verse 3. After that reply, the chief priest accused him of many things. So, so uh, from, from the crowd, there, there are all these cries from these religious leaders of many other things. The leaders follow up Jesus' reply to Pilate with, with lots of other charges. Mark doesn't list them, but, but I think it's Luke says, he mislead, he's misleading our nation. He's forbidding us to pay taxes. He's stirring up riots. All of these things. They're, 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 they're all these charges intended to pile on the guilt. Right? They, they have to convince Pilate that he's a danger, he's a threat. And if they do, then no problem, execution. So they're just piling on the evidence. Things that we know as readers, they're, they're exaggerated claims. And it's not true. And even Pilate, 
It's interesting. Pilate doesn't seem to buy all these charges. Look at verse 4. Pilate asked him, again, asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. It says of Pilate saying, just respond. Respond. The way that this trial, the way this trial would have worked was that upon Jesus' self-defense or the accused, Jesus would simply reply and say, no, that's wrong, or this is what I meant, let me clarify. And upon the, the defendant's defense, Pilate could judge in favor of Jesus and let him go. But Jesus had to respond. In a court case like this, the, the accused would have a chance to defend themselves. Themselves. So Pilate gives Jesus a chance. Just say something. I, I think Pilate wants to let him go. But Jesus has to respond. Verse 5, but Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. And I think Pilate is amazed because Jesus refuses to defend himself. He'll not rebuke the many charges against him. He won't explain. He won't clarify. I mean, all Jesus has to do is deny. Deny the charges and explain. That, that's not what I meant. They misunderstood that. And then Pilate lets him go. But Jesus remains silent. No answer. And in, in cases like this, the accused, upon their silence, they were given three chances to change their mind. You sure you don't want to say anything? You sure you don't want to say anything? You sure you don't want to say anything? If they didn't, if they remained silenced, there was no verdict other than guilty. Right? What, what's, a, what's a judge to do? He's made no defense of himself. And so Pilate cannot believe that Jesus will not speak. And I think here it's, it's important to note that, that Jesus is clearly, I'd say, being presented as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 that opens not his mouth. Silent, going to his death. And this theme of Jesus' silence, it's sustained all throughout Mark's passion narrative. So from the time of Gethsemane to his death, he only talks two times, and it's very briefly one, his response to Caiaphas, and, and here this response to Pilate. All the other events of the passion, Jesus is the passive one, convinced that, that he as the Son of Man must suffer and die. And so Mark's reader, as, as his readers, we sense that this, this passivity and silence of Jesus, we sense in that that the sovereign Lord of history is accomplishing mysterious purpose. There's something going on here. And so let me, before we, before we move on, let me, I do want to pause and make one quick point of application here because I think there's an example set by Christ's suffering. I think we see an example of Christ's suffering. I think he set an example for those who would come after him. He set the example of, of what it means to be the innocent Suffer. I was reminded of 1 Peter 4. Listen, 1 Peter is writing to a persecuted church. And in, in chapter 4, verse 12, listen to what Peter writes to them. He says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial, the persecution, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, the fiery trial, that, that's not strange. That's actually normal. So don't be surprised, but, verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's Sufferings, that you may be rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, Peter writes, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But, Peter says, let, no, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a, as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And so what's happening? 1 Peter 4, 12, you can go back and read this, but Peter is telling Christians, Peter is assuming that, that Christians are going to suffer for being Christians. That's what he's telling them. What it means, which means that Christians are going to suffer innocently. I think that's the point there of Peter. Peter says, don't any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. Now, why would he say that? Because 
If you suffer in those ways, you deserve it. Don't let that be the case with you, Christians. Don't suffer as a murderer because that suffering is warranted. There's no blessing in that. But, says Peter, when you're insulted for the name of Christ, when you suffer as a Christian, you are blessed, Peter says. You ought not be ashamed of that. Instead, Peter says, you ought to glorify God in that name, in the name of Christian sufferer. And so here, I think Jesus is setting an example of what it looks like to suffer well, to suffer innocently. I think this example is probably lost on us. We don't suffer for being Christians a lot, maybe some, but there are parts of the world where our brothers and sisters, where they would take great courage. In fact, Mark's original readers would take great courage. I, I can suffer. I can do this. I'm sharing in Christ's suffering. And so there's an example there. Well, well, let's move on. Verses 6 through 15. We see the king delivered. At the, at the beginning of these verses, we're going to see Pilate still isn't convinced, convinced of Jesus' guilt, and, and Pilate is still seeking to release him. So look there at verse 6. Now at the feast, he, that's Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for, for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison, one who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and they began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. So, so setting the scene, apparently during Passover, which is where the, the time that we're at, there's an established custom where Pilate would release a Jewish prisoner to the Jews. They'd come and they, it was a custom. Yearly, come, they ask him, and he releases one. Now there's po many possible reasons for this, but the most likely being that, that Pilate is a shrewd politician. You've got tons of Jews gathered in Jerusalem. What better way to make them happen? Hey, I'm going to release one of your people. What a great ruler I am. Right? This, is, this is a shrewd politician seeking to appease and keep happy the Jewish population. So Mark tells us about that custom. And in verse 8, he tells us the crowd is coming saying, hey, it's is now the time for you to release the prisoner. But, but notice between verses 6, the introduction of the custom, and verse 8, the crowd coming and asks, Mark adds a detail in verse 7. Among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Brabus. So verse 7, inserted in, Brabus, this man who's a murderer, who's actually guilty of murder. And so in verse 7, I think what Mark is doing, he's, he's already creating this contrast between these two prisoners. The two up on the docket, who's going to be released? Here, we have Barabbas. He is a murderer. He actually killed someone during the insurrection. This one, Barabbas, rightly condemned. This one deserves death. That's Barabbas. We'll talk about him more in a minute. But, but here's Jesus, who we as readers know, the innocent one. And so there's this contrast between these two prisoners. And so Pilate, seeing that, that Jesus won't defend himself, Pilate seeks to release him on account of this yearly custom. I think Pilate is, is looking for a way to, to let him go. Okay, he won't defend himself. There, there's still another chance. I'll release him. And so verse 9, they come to him and ask Pilate, release for us the prisoner. And, and Pilate answers saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Is this the one you want? In other words, hint, hint, this is the one. Verse 10 tells us, for he perceived, he offers Jesus, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. And so, so here's what I think is going on in Pilate's mind. Pilate sees these two people. He sees Jesus, an innocent man. No way he's guilty of, of the threat or the claims, not a threat. So here's Jesus. He's not, in, he's not guilty of what he's being charged with by the chief priests. 
And so I think in, in, in why he adds verse 10, why Mark adds verse 10 is Pilate perceives, oh, these chief priests, these are the ones who have the issue with Jesus. They're just jealous of him. That, that's the, they're just jealous of him. So I'm going to put forth Jesus in the crowd. They're going to support me. And they're going to say, yeah, release him. Right? So I think he sees a, a division between the, the high priest and the crowd. So I think as we say, I'm going to put forth Jesus. And so to the crowd, Pilate says, do you want me to release for you Jesus? Pilate decides the chief priests are envious. The crowd will respond differently, which may have been the case, but we won't know because look at verse 11. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd. The chief priests, they stir up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. We see that the populace, this, this Jewish populace, the crowd, they refuse to align themselves with Pilate, especially when asked to choose between a solution that he proposed and a solution per, supported by the leaders of the Sanhedrin, right? The Jews aren't going to go with Pilate. Okay, we don't know. He's not guilty. We don't care, but, but we're going with our leaders. We're not going with Pilate. And then Pilate, again, verse 12, said to him, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cry, crucify him. Pilate says, why? Last resort, why? What has he done? But they shouted all the more. You can, you can sense the, the mob mentality. Crucify him. Crucify him. Verse 15. Sad. Sad. Sad verse. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him up to be crucified. I mean, things get out of hand quickly. When, when the crowd is provoked, is instigated, things get out of hand quickly. The point of control had passed from, from the magistrate to the excited people. On the ground of political expediency, Pilate decided he had no choice but to yield to the determined will of the now fanatical mob. That's what's going on. Okay, it's getting out of control. It's getting out of control. I, I clearly have no voice here. So in order to placate the people, Pilate releases Barabbas and says, okay, off, crucify him. Scourge him, crucify him. Now, I'll just briefly, regarding the act of scourging, I'll simply say this was an incredibly severe and often... It was an incredibly severe act and often recorded in death. The, the victim, in this case Jesus, would have been stripped and, and hands tied above their head. And there'd be a whip of leather cords with, with pieces of, of bone or lead or glass embedded in these leather cords. And they would be whipped or scourged or beaten by this instrument of, of torture. Now the Jews limited scourges to 40 lashes, but with the Romans there was, there was no such limitation. And so the physical suffering of the crucifixion commences here. Right? This is painful. And notice all throughout this passage, I, I, this is, this is a, I don't know, uh, befuddling. All throughout this passage, Pilate is convinced that Jesus is innocent. I think that's, I think that's clear. He's, he's convinced he's not a threat, he's not harmful, he doesn't deserve punishment. He even sees the envy on the part of those who brought Jesus before him. He recognizes that. Yet here, when things start to get out of control, just a little bit, when the crowd begins to get a little too threatening, what does Pilate do? He's content to satisfy the crowd, even if it means sending an innocent man to death. Do you see that? He's content to satisfy the crowd. He doesn't care about justice. In Pilate's mind, the death of one man is better than provoking the entire Jewish nation even if that man's innocent, Pilate doesn't care. 
Political pragmatism rules the day for Pilate. Justice, righteousness, nothing on the table. Who cares? And so Pilate scourges Jesus, delivers him to be crucified. Then, then finally, our third scene, that the king is mocked, verses 16 through 20. Having been beaten and scourged, Jesus is then mocked by the soldiers. Look at verse 16. The soldiers, they led him away inside the palace. So, so relief from the riotous crowd. He's inside the governor's headquarters. And, and these soldiers, now they call together the whole battalion. Everyone, hey, hey, guys, come on, come here. Verse 17, and they clothed him, that's Jesus, in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they, they put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in, in homage to him, bowing before the King of the Jews. Verse 20, when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and they put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. So here's Jesus being handed over to the soldiers and his claim or his title, his identity was rejected. Just like the Sanhedrin, here the soldiers, they reject and they mock Jesus. As these soldiers take Jesus into custody, they definitely don't see a king, right? This man... A king? Ha! This is a weak, abandoned, beaten, helpless man. But he's been charged with claiming to be a king, so, so let's have a little fun with this fake king. Utterly alone, humiliated, and virtually naked, Jesus was set in front of these soldiers in mock, regal dress, a, 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 gr- a crown of thorns, and a purple robe. Right? This is mock, regal dress. This is clothing of a king. And they called him king of the Jews while spitting on him and striking him on the head. They would show Jesus what they really thought of his claims. And and here's the irony. They did not have eyes to see that the only thing they were doing was fulfilling to the letter the manifesto that Jesus had earlier published among his disciples. That I'm going to be handed over and beaten and scourged. And so so they're carrying out the divine plan that Jesus had, had said would happen. And so ironically, even in the hour of his darkest humiliation, Jesus was, was reigning as king, right? What he declared was coming to pass. But when their fun was over, verse 20, the time had come after they'd mocked him, they, they take off these, this, this cloak and the crown and they put on his own clothes on him and they send him away to crucify him. And that's where we'll pick up next week with the crucifixion. But before we close, let, let me make a few points of application. First, first point of application, the innocence of Jesus. I mean, in these verses, throughout this whole process, it seems to take a, a pretty drastic turn, a, a fast turn. I mean, Jesus is clearly innocent, and, and Pilate is, is working. I mean, even from the garden, Jesus is, is betrayed. Now he's falsely accused by the Sanhedrin. And, and here, before Pilate, everyone knows Jesus is innocent. As we're reading, he's innocent, so surely the, this Roman authority in the region, seeing the, the innocence of Jesus, surely he'll be able to save Jesus from this undeserved end. I mean, that's the tenor. Okay, Pilate, Pilate believes him. He sees the, the envy of these religious leaders. Surely Pilate's going to fix this. And then all of a sudden, verse 15 ends with Jesus being scourged and, and being delivered to be crucified. And I, I, just, I just want us to feel the weight of an innocent man being crucified. Right? Jesus is innocent. Remember that. He's not 
guilty. I mean, think about when someone's convicted of a crime, they, they do the time, they pay the penalty, and, and then 5, 10, 50 years later, it comes out they got the wrong person. Right? We get incensed. What injustice? I can't believe they got it wrong. Well, here we're encountering an innocent man not just doing time, not just having to pay a fine, but being sentenced to death. I mean, don't, don't lose that. This is an innocent man being crucified, which leads to the second application. Who crucified Jesus? As we read this passage, we, we encounter the crucial, que- crucial question, who's responsible for this? Who's responsible for this injustice, this crucifixion of the innocent? Man, at first glance, it may seem that it's the Jewish leaders. I mean, Pilate wanted to let him go, but, but the Jews wouldn't have it. I mean, the Jews, the, these religious leaders, they're the ones who stirred up the crowd and, and shouted, crucify him. So it's clear, it's, it's the Jews' fault, some would say. I mean, and some scholars blame Mark for being anti-Semitic. They say Mark was just telling this story to get back at the Jews because it was their fault. And so Mark hated the Jews. He wanted it to be clear it was their fault. So it was the Jews' fault, some say. Others, in response, shift the blame to the Romans. They say Mark's just writing to make it seem like the Jews did it because he didn't want to upset the Romans because he was still under their authority. So it was actually the Romans' fault. In reality, these people would say the Romans were the ones who were ultimately responsible for the crucifixion. And so lots of other answers in between that spectrum. So who was it? Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? From a human standpoint, we have to recognize the, the confluence of, of players in the, in the crucifixion. Many moving parts, all working together, were responsible for the crucifixion. And, I mean, not to mention, I hope you recognize that in one sense, you, 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 me, are responsible for the death of Jesus. If Jesus died for sinners, it, it, was, it was us, it was our sin that was responsible humanly for his death. So, so from a human sp- standpoint, not one group is responsible. Okay? It's just, it, there's all these play- pieces. So it is a wrong application to be anti-Semitic, to use this and say, listen, we, we should get back at them because they killed our Messiah. That's, that's not the point here. In fact... There's at work here more than human responsibility. I would say ultimately, with all things considered, the the answer to the question of who killed Jesus has a more profound answer than the Jews or the Romans or us. And that answer, which I'd say Mark has gone to great lengths to make clear throughout his gospel, is that God, God is the one who is ultimately responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. This this trial, this whole process from Gethsemane to Pilate's seat was no accident of history. No human agent can be said it's their fault because there's something greater than human agency at work here. God is at work here. This was the unfolding of God's plan. God the Father delivered his son over to death. God did not spare his own son but gave him. God the Son humbled himself was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The obedience of the Son is at work here. No one took Jesus' life. He laid it down freely in obedience to the Father. God is the one. And so the application is this. All the injustice, all the innocent suffering, it it actually wasn't injustice. It actually wasn't innocent suffering. Instead, it was God the Father substituting the Son in our place. Our privilege, our our right of being in right relationship, of being reconciled to God, 
the very gospel message itself is dependent upon the justice of Jesus being crucified. It's dependent upon the guilt of the one hanging on the cross. Bearing shame and and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed with pardon with his blood, hallelujah, what a savior. Guilty, vile, helpless, we. We, guilty, vile, helpless, spotless lamb of God. Was he full atonement? Can it actually be? Hallelujah, what a savior. God's justice was upheld on the cross. He punished Jesus for sins. Full atonement, it is finished on the cross. And so the response to Jesus' death should not be to seek someone to blame. Whose fault is it? But rather to offer praise and thanks to God for his salvation. Which leads to our final point of application. The lesson of Barabbas. The lesson of Barabbas. This is often the point of application made from this passage. And I think it's fitting Because I think in Barabbas, in this man, in this criminal, I think we see a picture of the gospel. One commentator, what a striking type the release of Barabbas affords of the gospel plan of salvation. And so so Barabbas is a type. It's a gospel picture, what happens to Barabbas. Now, I'm going to read one commentator at length, because he says it better than I could. And and here's the the type, here's the pattern that's set up by Barabbas that we see that points to the pattern of the gospel itself. He writes, The guilty is set free, and the innocent is put to death. The great sinner is delivered, and the sinless one remains bound. Barabbas is spared, and Christ is crucified. We have in this striking fact a vivid emblem of the manner in which God pardons and justifies the ungodly. He does it because Christ has suffered in their place, the just for the unjust. They deserve punishment, but a mighty substitute has suffered for them. They deserve eternal death, but a glorious surety has died for them. We are all by nature in the position of Barabbas. We are guilty, wicked, and worthy of condemnation. But when we were without hope, Christ the innocent died for the ungodly. That's us. And now God, for Christ's sake, can be just and yet justify the one who believes in the name of Jesus. Let us bless God, he closes, that we have such a glorious salvation set before us. Our plea must always be, not that we're deserving of acquittal, not that we deserve to go free, but that Christ has died for us. Let us take heed that having so great a salvation, we can really make use of it for our own souls. May we never rest Until we can say by faith, Christ is mine. I deserve hell, but Christ has died for me. And believing in him, I have a hope of heaven. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. Jesus was kept, bound, beaten, crucified, so that we, those who deserve those things, might go free. Guilty, but declared innocent. That's us. Not because God swept our guilt under the rug, but because God punished his son in our place. Let us bless God that we have such a glorious salvation before us. May we never rest until we can say by faith, Christ is mine. I deserve hell, but Christ has died for me. He's mine. 
Let's pray.